so excited that you're joining us today we are officially in the last few passages that we're going to be covering in the book of mark and we have entered the final section in mark where jesus is now in jerusalem which ultimately leads to his arrest and trial and crucifixion this is the fulfillment of god's plan for redemption and so many of us are quite familiar with the overall themes that are going to be appearing uh, but as we dive into it i pray that there's going to be fresh revelation as you explore god's heart and how he conducted himself and what we can learn uh, through the life of jesus in the coming weeks well let's jump straight into mark chapter 11 verses 1 to 11 and it says this as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside the street, tied at the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there said, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people uh, let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Um, Many people spread their cloaks. Sorry about that. Many uh, many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven!" Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. This passage is often called a triumphal entry. Jesus riding into Jerusalem uh, to the throngs of people, welcoming him in great celebration. And you know, Beck and I were in Jerusalem about six years ago, and we got to see one of the gates uh, into the city. Uh, the gate is, is known as the Jaffa Gate, or in, in, in Jewish it would be Joppa Gate, as it was known. Uh, but it was also known quite affectionately as the Allenby Gate, uh, 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 colloquially uh, uh, in the locals because General Edmund Allenby walked victoriously into Jerusalem having won the victory against the Ottomans in World War I. There are pictures commemorating this moment as people lined the sides of the road uh, and, and, and welcomed this victorious general in. This is the kind of scene that uh, we should be thinking about when Jesus walks into Jerusalem. It's not just some person, some visitor walking into Jerusalem. He was being welcomed as this triumphal king. They, they lined the roads with, with their clothing and, and, and with, with leaves. Uh, some, some people say it will be palm leaves and that's why this Sunday is also known as Palm Sunday in the lead up to Easter every year. Uh, but uh, there was this symbolism that Jesus is this victorious king. Now, it's kind of interesting for us today thinking that Jesus rode in on a donkey. However, uh, in ancient times, riding on a donkey was significant because if Jesus was to ride in 
on a horse, on a war horse, for example, in all his majesty and his strength, it would signify that Jesus is riding in to war. However, Jesus rode a donkey which symbolized peace. And there's also another interesting detail in that uh, uh, when Solomon was being inaugurated as the king, he was placed on a donkey ridden around and, 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 and that he was introduced as the new king of Israel. Now that's an interesting note because um, Jesus is also known as the son of David along the line of King David. And so him riding on a donkey possibly would have conjured up images of King Solomon being ridden around on a donkey as well, being welcomed as the king. Jesus as the new king of David, Solomon as the son, uh, sorry, as a, Jesus as the descendant of David and Solomon as the son of David, both riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. This is significant. This also fulfills the prophecy in Zechariah 9 verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus isn't coming in with pride. Jesus isn't coming with strength. Jesus isn't coming uh, to throw chaos into this place. He is bringing peace, humbly bringing peace to Jerusalem. One of the things that people were shouting as Jesus rode in was Hosanna, which simply means Lord save us. This is taken literally from Psalm 118 verses 25. And we do need to check out verse 26 as well. And it says this, Lord save us. Lord grant us success. Lord save us. Hosanna. Lord grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember that was something else that people were shouting to Jesus as well. These were messianic declarations. Basically, setting the scene. People heard Jesus is entering Jerusalem. They lined the streets. They put their cloaks and leaves to line the street as a sign of respect and honor. And when Jesus came in, they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of David. There was this realization. There was this moment where they went, wow, here comes the Messiah. What an epic way to introduce this final segment of Jesus's life on, on planet Earth. He was introduced, welcomed, uh, and brought in as a victorious king. Wow! Did the people really know what they were saying? Did they really know what they were doing? I guess this is one of those passages that kind of is a little bit almost in stark contrast to the events that have been leading up. Jesus was being questioned, doubted, challenged. But here we have that Jesus was welcomed as the Messiah. Was there something that was going to stay? Is this what is going to happen? Were they expecting something uh, to take place um, from here? Well, we've got, we got to read on. And so we, we reach uh, verses 12 uh, to 25. It says this, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. 
Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if there had any fruit. When they reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cares has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself in the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. I find this passage fascinating. It was the first passage that I preached from um, and when I first became a pastor nearly 10 years ago. Uh, so wholesome nostalgic value for me. And the key to understanding this passage is in the structure. You see, Mark has very purposefully broken up the account of the fig tree. So we see the uh, initial portion of Jesus approaching the fig tree and cursing it. And then we have this passage that is inserted and breaking up the fig tree story about Jesus clearing the temple before we come to the conclusion of the fig tree account. And Mark writes it in this way intentionally because he wants us to see that these two are actually talking about the same thing. We cannot understand the fig tree without the temple. We cannot understand the temple without the fig tree. Mark intends for us to read it together as two different symbols, uh, two different aspects to what he is trying to convey, the revelation that he is trying to convey. So let's take a look at this. Jesus saw the fig tree and he went towards it because he was hungry. Why did he choose this tree? Because it was in full leaf. When a fig tree is in full leaf, it symbolizes that it has fruit. A fig tree is not supposed to have full leaf unless it's also full fruit. However, when Jesus goes to this full-leaved fig tree, he finds that it has zero fruit on it. It was disguising itself as a fruitful tree. In this way, my, my message 10 years ago was titled Fig or Figless. Are we fig, figful or are we figless? Are we fruitful or are we fruitless? Do we have the impression, the outward look of someone that is full of fruit? Or are we just empty on the inside? And, and, and it's something that we really do need to consider. Maybe this also has to do with the crowds that were welcoming Jesus. They came with this sense of celebration. They knew how uh, to utter the messianic declarations. But did they know what the Messiah was here to do? 
Did they truly have the revelation? Did they truly have fruit? Or were they substanceless, substanceless in, in, in the welcome of Jesus? Anyway, Jesus discovers that this tree has no fruit and he proceeds to curse it, saying that no one will ever eat fruit from it again. And then from there, Jesus goes and enters the temple and he begins to drive out both those who are selling and those who are buying. Not just the sellers, but the sellers and the buyers. And, and completely clears it out, doesn't allow people that have merchandise to come in. It doesn't say that those who were there to, to, to properly worship, that Jesus drove them out. It was those that were participating in this marketplace that had been set up in the temple. And I do wonder if this clearing was premeditated because in the previous passage, uh, we read that Jesus on the day before had done a little bit of a loop around the temple and had taken stock of what was taking place. Perhaps that night he was praying about it and going, God, what is going on in the temple? And, and he proceeds to clear the temple on the following day. And then when he clears it, he, he, he makes two quotations. The first one is from Isaiah 56 verse 7, which was a prophecy about salvation being brought to all nations. And therefore the temple becomes this house of prayer because all nations are saved and they want to meet with God. And then the second uh, quotation is from Jeremiah 7 verse 11. And that is where the prophet Jeremiah was condemning Israel for practicing false religion. He was saying, that they were doing all these festivals, they were doing all these symbols of worship, but their hearts were far away. And so we have this sense that the temple is meant to be a place flowing out with salvation for all, but yet it is a place where there is this false religion. There's this sense where there is life, there are people everywhere, but they are not truly there to meet with God. Instead, they have made it about personal gain. And so Jesus clears the temple because as much as the temple looked alive, it had no fruit. As much as it looked like it had the, the symbol of fruitfulness, the signs of fruitfulness, people were there. But yet Jesus saw that there was no fruit. And it would seem that the religious leaders at that time, at the very least, allowed this practice of, of turning the temple into a marketplace uh, because uh, upon hearing what Jesus was doing, it's not like they didn't know that that was what was taking place in the temple. Uh, but when they hear what Jesus had done in clearing the temple and making those prophetic declarations, bringing uh, uh, the prophets from, uh, from Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and declaring it, it would seem that they were personally involved in either allowing uh, or even profiting from what was taking place at the temple. These were the people who were meant to be guarding the temple, guarding the house of God, and yet they did not understand what the temple was meant to be for. And so anyway, Jesus chases everyone out, and then later that evening they proceed to once again pass by the fig tree that Jesus had cursed. And at this point, the fig tree had fully withered from the root. 
The disciples pointed this out in amazement. And Jesus then goes on to state that if they have faith in God, whatever they ask for will be done. There's this faith. If they have faith, they will be able to move this mountain. And there are other passages that describe what we now call mountain moving faith. And and so that, that is a proper interpretation that our faith is able to move obstacles and mountains. It is a powerful thing to have faith in God. However, I believe that Mark was wanting to point something else out. You see, the temple in Jerusalem is, is situated at the top of the, 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 the hill, the, the, the hill that is Jerusalem. When, when, when Jewish people talk about going to Jerusalem, they always say, let's go up to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem is on a hill. And when they say, let's go to the temple, they always say, let's go up to the temple because you go up to Jerusalem and then you go up to the temple. The temple is situated on a high place. And so when Jesus was saying, you can say to this mountain, was he talking about any mountain or was he talking about the temple mount? That is an actual term that is used to describe the place of the temple, the temple mount. Was he describing just any mountain, just any obstacle, or was he talking about that temple mount in particular? You see, the Jewish people so placed all of their faith in the temple. They wanted to build this temple because they believed that if they had this physical temple, it would demonstrate that God is there. But Jesus is saying, hang on, if you have faith, get rid of this physical location because the physical location has become a stumbling block to people. People have the temple, but they don't understand how to see God. They have made it into a marketplace. It's meant to be a place of salvation. It's meant to be a place where people get to meet with God. It's a place where you disciple yourself, you discipline yourself in meeting God, bringing your sacrifices, bringing your praise. But people have lost sight of that and made it into a place of personal gain. I I get fired up with this passage because... God's desire is that we are full of fruit. When Jesus went to that fig tree, he went to it because it looked like it had fruit. Jesus at that point didn't condemn the tree yet. He went to check its fruit. And in that way, Jesus is not against us having leaves and having the symbols of fruitfulness. Jesus is against us having the symbols of fruitfulness, but being dry and dead on the inside. This passage is powerful. I think it has links to the triumphal entry. I wonder whether Jesus was actually sad when he saw the throngs of people uh, uh, worshipping him and welcoming him in because he knew that their hearts weren't really about worshipping God, but maybe it was about, okay, Jesus, what are you going to do for me? Do, do you have a faith that is, I can meet with God today. I am going to meet with God today. I don't need to wait for a temple. I don't need to wait for a physical location. My faith is that right here, right now, I'm going to meet with God. I believe that that is why Jesus added on that when we pray, remember we talked about this, prayers about this personal relationship with God. When we pray, remember that we need to forgive. If you've forgotten uh, uh, that there's a situation that needs uh, uh, repentance and forgiveness, go, go deal with that. 
And Jesus does talk about this kind of forgiveness before you go to the temple, before you bring your sacrifice. Make it right with your brother and sister before you come. Forgiveness is such a massive concept. Remember, Jesus also taught us how to pray. Forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness, unforgiveness is one of those things that stop us from truly being able to meet with God. Perhaps like the marketplace and the temple that stops people from recognizing what the place was meant for, for meeting with God. Unforgiveness is the same thing. Unforgiveness is about keeping accounts, is about this... this um, this sense of, 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 of calculating and, 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 and you wronged me and, and you know, so I get to wrong you and, and you did this and so I'm going to take revenge. And, and there's this almost transactional approach to relationship. But Jesus is saying none of this. Forgive. Settle all those kinds of accounts and clear it out. Forgive people, those who have wronged you, just as God has forgiven you. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. How are we keeping our temple? Is it full of unforgiveness? Is it full of hurts and all the things that have been wrong, uh, that we have been wronged by? Are we keeping accounts of those things? Are we clearing it out to ensure that we aren't practicing some kind of false Christianity? We are meant to be fully meeting with God with vulnerability, openness, and forgiveness now i do want to make a very quick note about a verse 26 a few translations have taken out this verse and you might ask how is that allowed and i see some foreign posts all oh, these modern uh, translations they are changing the bible not changing the bible what happens is that the bible that we have is is recorded from manuscripts and, and is and is taken from uh, generation to generation people copying and and transcribing uh, the Word of God so that we have what we have today. Now, archaeology continues uh, to, from time to time, find other manuscripts. And when it's dated as an older manuscript, it is compared with uh, newer manuscripts. And verse 26 in Mark um, uh, uh, chapter 11, uh, the older manuscripts don't contain verse 26. Uh, that verse can be found in, in, in other parts of the Bible in a very similar narrative in, in, in Matthew uh, in particular, I believe. And, and so maybe while they were transcribing it, it's like, oh, you know, there's this note from, from this other gospel. And so it fits here as well. And so it, it's a bit of an, uh, a later transcriber's note, perhaps. It doesn't change the narrative. But in order for us to remember or, or to know what was part of the older manuscript, it is left as a footnote rather than in the actual text. It does not change the message at all. In fact, it should give us confidence when we look at that, that there is integrity in the work of translators uh, in bringing um, what was transcribed hundreds if not a couple of thousand years ago into modernity and we can actually see all of this in the footnotes when you uh, dive into it and you understand what is taking place it should give us confidence that the bible is very accurate all right, we do need to go into the final section that we're going to cover today. Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. Who has given you authority to do this? 
Jesus replied, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feed the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. We once again see the challenge of the religious leaders. And it's going to just ramp up from here, to be honest. But instead of looking for ways to trap Jesus in this account, it was like they were really frustrated and angry that Jesus would have cleared the temple the day before. And so they come and they challenge him directly. What is your authority? What is your credentials? Jesus doesn't really seem to be bothered by this and all he does is issues a challenge back he asked them if they recognized what authority jesus, uh, john the baptist was operating under and what jesus knows is that him and uh, john the baptist was actually preparing the way for him john had already said this is the messiah this is the man whose sandals i am not even worthy to untie and and, and so he goes back well it, let's talk about the guy who was preparing the way for me. What authority do you say that he was operating under? It should have been a very straightforward response because if they did not want to acknowledge Jesus' authority, then they shouldn't have acknowledged John's authority either. Should have been straightforward. But, but these religious leaders, these men who were leading the nation of Israel, they were scared of people's opinion. They could not even stand on their own convictions. They did not want to acknowledge John's baptism. They did not want to. They did not see that John the Baptist was Elijah preparing the way for the Messiah. They did not want to see it, but they could not say that because they feared people. Leaders who base their lives on human approval will often find that it cannot lead according to their values. Why? Because their values are all floating with how people are responding to them. Jesus didn't waste time with such spineless leaders. He just simply moved on. In the next few passages, we're going to see that Jesus confronts these leaders head on. It's going to be a very epic confrontation. And so next week, uh, we're going to be covering that. Make sure that you come back for that. But in, in, uh, just to summarize today, uh, today's passage that we looked through, we saw the people welcoming Jesus with such celebration. But was it a true celebration? And we end up with the religious leaders showing that they did not get what Jesus was trying to do or where he came from. The question remains, do you really have faith in Jesus? How are you going to respond to what Jesus is doing? Because when Jesus comes, he doesn't fulfill what we want him to do. Jesus fulfills what he has been called to do. And that sometimes means clearing the temple. That sometimes means ensuring that figless trees are not going to be standing around deceitfully, uh, tempting people to come towards them with fruit when there is no fruit. Christians, you are meant to have fruit. When Jesus comes to you and he rebukes you and brings correction in your life, it's for the purpose of becoming more fruitful. But sometimes that is going to be challenging and sometimes that is going to be extremely uncomfortable. How are you going to respond to that? Let me just pray as we finish off today's session. Dear Jesus, I pray that as you walk into our lives, that as you take stock of what we have done and what we are doing, 
I pray that if there is any correction, if there is any need to, to um, uh, guide us in a new way, I pray that despite any discomfort, despite any uh, frustration that it might cause us personally, I pray that we will see that you are trying to bring life to us. I pray that we will lean in to your authority, that we will lean in into your guidance in our lives. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks so much, everyone. Make sure you jump into your lift groups this week as we discuss the passages we covered today. Thanks, everyone.